Well, good evening. Uh, we're so glad that you took your time uh, this Lord's Day evening to stop by here and to listen to see what the Lord has for us from uh, our study in the Gospel of Luke. So uh, it's sort of a historic Sunday to some, in some sense. It's been uh, two years since we were able to vote as a church family. Uh, so I hope you took advantage of that and discerned what God's will is from your heart perspective. Yeah. Trust that you're walking in the spirit and sort of counterintuitive how the church makes decisions. It requires a congregation of people who are walking in the Spirit to determine unity. And it's really through that unity that the Holy Spirit guides and directs us. So I trust that whatever level of Christianity we find ourselves to be in, we know that it's a progressive thing and that there are some newer to the faith, some in middle life in the faith, some older in the faith, but all of us, wherever we're at, have the opportunity to really understand and sense the Spirit's leading through prayer, through our own <clears throat> growth and grace. And I trust that you uh, enjoy the process. I think often from the King of Kings perspective, he uh, really loves the process. And it's really in the process that we find his purpose for Grace Church of Menor. And that's to really be sensitive to the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, faith, temperance, uh, to really have our hearts and minds uh, exercise and whatsoever things are true, lovely, pure, of good report, uh, to abound in love. That's really selflessness. Uh, is really what we've been given this grand capacity in Christ to exercise selflessness, and it's in that exercise that we apply knowledge and discernment that we find excellence uh, at the end of that process. It seems as though that our own self-interests, unaided by the Spirit, is really what uh, curtails our ability to find excellence. So we're so thankful that in Christ we have this new ability to love. And uh, so all of these things hopefully came into play today as you cast your vote, and so thankful that God's will is known and that we have some direction going forward. So that being said, let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer as we look to see what God has for us here in Luke chapter 18. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for uh, your amazing wisdom that you've displayed uh, in the church. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our head. Uh, we thank you, Jesus, for the amazing wisdom you had to leave us the Holy Spirit who guides us, who gifts us, who illuminates us, who comforts us, who convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and who helps us to apprehend in, uh, in illumination the, the application of Scripture to our own life individually and our church life corporately. So we thank you, dear Spirit, for your effectual ministry, and uh, we delight in our responsibility to to walk in the spirit to not fulfill the lusts of the flesh to not grieve you dear spirit where we confess apart from you dear spirit we can't do anything uh, we we need full assurance and we thank you that you minister that to us as well and we thank you for the church's exercise of her will today we trust we've clearly apprehended the will of God on earth for us. And we just pray that you would bless us now as we go forward in light of those decisions. 
And uh, we thank you for that. Lord, we do pray for our church family as well. Many are still reeling from the passing of loved ones. And, oh, God, our heart uh, goes out to them. And we pray that, uh, that they would know your comfort, that this would be a, an opportunity for all to draw closer to you, that we would see these things fall out to the furtherance of the gospel. Lord, heaven truly is becoming more and more familiar uh, as our loved ones are promoted and rescued out of this old sin-cursed world. And uh, we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, as we apply ourselves now to uh, the text of Scripture here tonight, uh, that you would illumine our minds, that there would be something here that, that would truly convict or encourage or, or establish um, somebody under the sound of my voice here uh, this evening. So we commend these things to you, Lord. We love you. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue our study in the uh, Gospel of Luke, I ask you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And unlike some of the assignments that have been given where there were literally uh, chapters upon chapters that had to be dealt with in a single evening. Uh, tonight, I have the joy of, of really just handling, I think, uh, four verses. And uh, so, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know how I am. I'm sure I'll still take the balance of the time, uh, but hopefully uh, we'll be able to look at these verses in a little more depth and, and derive uh, the benefits. So we're looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. I'm going to read those, uh, uh, those verses for us, and then we'll get into the comments that the Lord has laid on my heart with respect to my study of this passage of Scripture. So here Luke reports, Then he, that's Jesus, took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles... He will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. And then a curious statement that Luke reports in verse 34. But the disciples understood none of these particular things. And the meaning of the statement was hidden from them. So there's sort of this confluence between the reality of their, the disciples' ability to apprehend the meaning of these things, of this statement, and really God's sovereign will. Uh, they're not in conflict here. They're in confluence. One is included in the other and will accomplish the purposes that God ordained them to accomplish. But it says here, But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. You know, as I was studying this passage, a thought came to my mind, and it's a thought really found in this very simple phrase, and that is, the spirit of the times, or the spirit of the age. Uh, the Germans uh, have a special word for this idea. Uh, it's pronounced Zeitgeist. I won't spell it for you. It's a German word. 
but it, but it has this idea of sort of the situation of life uh, broadly as it's expressed in culture. Um, so the spirit of the times. You know, every generation seems to take on a certain spirit or concern that gives an ability to broadly define that generation. And, uh, hence, uh, the oft-debated and perhaps all-too-broad classifications of generations. Uh, um, we know there's the greatest generation. These evidently were people who were born in between 1910 and 1924. Um, the baby boomer generation, those born between 1946 and 1964. Um, uh, we've heard much about the millennial generation, Generation Y and Next Gen. Uh, these are young people born between 1980 and 1994. And, um, and on and on it goes. Evidently, we are now... Uh, uh, to experience uh, evidently Gen Alpha. Uh, these will be young people born between 2013 and 2025. And who knows exactly what the spirit of the age will be as a result of those young people's influence within our culture. But these broad classifications, the spirit of the times. You know, in Nazi-controlled Germany, the church had bowed to the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age at that time was a strict rationalism. This was a new kind of rationalism. It was guided by natural evolutionary process rather than any reference to supernatural God and morality outside of the individual. Supernatural matters were simply considered to be foolish. The inspiration of the Bible, therefore, was jettisoned by a church that was trying to be more relevant. And as a result, the authority of the scriptures were absolutely obliterated. And the church, particularly in Germany at that time, became a playground for competing ideas about ultimate realities. Who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose in life, and where am I going to go after I die? You know, the church in Germany in that era lost her ability to objectively say no. She lost her ability to say, stop, don't do that. And into that vacuum rushed Hitler's Mein Kampf. In Hitler's Nazi Germany, children were taught that it was the Jews who were the Christ killers. Hence, being Jewish was to be deemed a crime. In Nazi Germany, Jesus was viewed as a war hero who waged war against the Jews until he was killed by them. So the story, the propaganda story went. Children were provided with slogans to learn and recite, such as, Judas the Jew betrayed Jesus. And the Germans... I'm sorry, the, the slogan went, Judas the Jew betrayed Jesus and the German to the Jews. So there was this whole spirit of the age that was really birthed in confusion and birthed in the church's inability because she had jettisoned 
the authority of the word of God. You know, Theophilus, we know that Luke writes to Theophilus, as told by us in Luke chapter 1. Theophilus, who is Luke's primary audience for his gospel, was probably a God-fearer. This was a technical designation for a Gentile who respected Judaism. The gospel in the New Testament found great progress among these Gentile God-fearers. It seemed like they were really readied by the Spirit to receive the gospel. And it was important that Theophilus be privy to this exact truth concerning Jesus' precise fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah, as we read here in our text. Luke reports that Jesus grounds in a very concrete way in the minds, will, and emotions of these soon-to-be apostles the authority of the objective, inherent, invaluable, infallible scriptures. You know, these apostles, these soon-to-be apostles, uh, were about to hit the brick wall of a new spirit of an age, a spirit that would turn on Jesus and crucify their Messiah. You know, it is profoundly instructive that Jesus takes the apostles away and he tethers them to the scriptures, to the written word of God. Jesus knows full well that for now, these apostles would not understand, as reported to us here in Luke. But when the collision came and he was no longer with them, they would find the backstop for their doubts in the objective, inerrant word of God, in scriptures that were infallible, in scriptures that had prophesied hundreds of years earlier events that would come precisely true in the life of Jesus the Messiah. You know, the objective standard of the written word of God serves as the critical backstop in every generation for doubts that often arise in real time in the middle of the mess when the church is living in the spirit of any age in which she finds herself. Tonight, we find Jesus's method very instructive, especially for us who live in a time where the spirit of age does not require a generation for change anymore. With social media, it flips and flops like a fish on a boat trying to find its way back to the safety of the water. And it does so sometimes within months, let alone years. So tonight I want to note three methods that Jesus uses to prepare his apostles for the coming cultural storm that they would face. And then I want to make application for us today in the church as we face coming cultural storms that could tend to upset the church if we're not careful. And I believe we're living through some of them right now. Um, 
Obviously the pandemic, uh, the question of, of how the church is going to respond, um, how she's going to make her way back. And I think the, the, the method that Jesus takes here is very instructive for us as we consider where we're at in the spirit of our own age. So the first thing we want to note, the first method that Jesus uses is this. Jesus takes time with his disciples. Jesus takes time with his disciples. We've already mentioned for these disciples, these soon-to-be apostles, the spirit of the age was about to radically change and literally turn their worlds upside down. You know, survival for the disciples required clear, objective instruction to look back on when it all broke loose. Our text tells us here that Jesus patiently takes them aside. You know, what was coming was going to require a bit of extra time for these disciples to sit with Jesus. You know, one of the things I've appreciated so much about our pastor and his leadership is right from the very beginning, I remember him saying, look, we're going we're gonna to talk to our people in, in sort of these pastor-on-pastor uh, -pastor discussions. And, and uh, he's employed certain people in our own church family, and, and he's taken extra time. And I know it's, con it, it's his heart, even as we were talking about the future, to continue to spend more time. Uh, he's arranging our whole Sunday nights in the new coming year and with, with more time so that we can spend together in fellowship and be together as we wrestle with the current spirit of the age, the, a world that to some degree uh, has been turned upside down for us. Um, he's, he's in essence replicating what Jesus did here with the disciples. He took them aside. He spent some extra time. Our text goes on to say that Jesus' words, he begins with the word behold. Uh, this is a word, a Greek word, simply a marker uh, to remind us that it's important that we stop and we give extreme attention to what's about ready to be said. You know, what was coming for these soon-to-be apostles as their world would be turned upside down, it would require right now the disciples' full attention. Full attention. And Jesus asked for that full attention. You know, I know pastor is going to be asking us for our full attention. Um, we need to uh, uh, certainly recognize that as we move forward, we want to give our full attention. Now, we certainly, as leaders, and I know our pastor would never claim to be Jesus, obviously. Jesus has omniscience. He knows what's going to happen. We certainly don't. But we, like Jesus, want to make sure that the hearts and minds of our people are giving full attention to the objective word of God. Uh, and we'll see that here in a little bit more. In, in a little bit uh, uh, down in our comments. So tonight, if you still have doubts that a disciple-making culture is critical for generational success of Grace Church of Mentor, or I would say not only generational success, but for contemporary success in a day when the spirit of the age is turned upside down, if you're still doubting that the disciple-making culture really has any help I hope now 
from the very words of Jesus, you see the error of your thinking there. That we would all together embrace more fervently uh, this disciple-making culture, an idea where we take extra time, where we take extra attention, and we apply it uh, in, in, in fellowship together to the Word of God. You know, Jesus knew the lives of these men intimately. He knew that there was a wall ahead in their spiritual journey. You know, Jesus certainly preached publicly, but he didn't rely upon his public preaching, particularly when he knew there was a, a wall of intimate personal application that was going to be needed in the lives of these men. No, he took them aside and he warned them and he talked them through it. Disciples need time. Disciples need to give their full attention to critical spiritual matters in order for them to deal with and reckon with the spirit of their age. So not only did Jesus take time, but secondly tonight, Jesus gives a timeless anchor. And here's really where we um, perhaps begin to get some, uh, some real insight um, you know, the only hope for surviving the undulating spirit of the ages is to grip firmly to timeless truth that is available, that is objectifiable, and that is agreeable by all. That's the only hope. Jesus recognized that. In other words, the reality is Jesus would not be with them. He knew that. So he had to uh, 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 whet their appetite. There, he had to insist that their allegiance be placed somewhere else. There was going to need to be some other mechanism, some other anchor that would steady them in his absence. And it seems like that's really the purpose here. Uh, we find out in our text that the anchor is a written anchor. We read that. We read that here um, uh, in verse number 31. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written, written through the prophets. Jesus knew that the allegiance of these apostles must be in the objectifiable written word of God if they were going to survive the upheaval of their worlds as they knew them. The anchor is a written anchor. These Old Testament prophetic predictions are absolutely stunning and amazing. These were prophecies that were made 700 to 1,000 years before Jesus of Nazareth ever appeared upon the scene. And, and, and Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection demonstrate with laser-like precision detailed fulfillment of these amazing prophecies. Not only was the anchor uh, a written anchor, an objectifiable, therefore, anchor, but it's a it, the anchor's subject was a person. 
It was a person who the prophets had revealed in the name of the Son of Man. Uh, This is a concept, an Old Testament concept that Daniel develops in his vision in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14. This was a concept that was familiar to these would-be soon apostles, these disciples who, who grew up in an Old Testament understanding. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. There Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, apparently the father, and was presented before him. And to him, that is the son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It was this very idea of the kingdom that the Messiah would institute that was going to be threatened with the fact that Jesus first had to die for the sins of the world. He had to die to secure the critical initial requirement for entrance into that kingdom, and that is to deal with the sins of mankind. But Jesus gave them the Son of Man. He reminded them that although their world was about to be turned upside down, never to let go of the truth that the king would come, that the kingdom would be established, although for a time it would be temporarily put aside. So the anchor was written, the anchor was a person, the anchor was irresistible and incapable of being frustrated or circumnavigated in any way. Our text tells us that these things will be accomplished. And it is this confidence that uh, these apostles would need to understand, even though they're not going to get it just yet, when the fire comes, this would be their anchor that would hold this amazing promise, and it would take them through uh, all of the upheaval and a world turned upside down. Well, what of these but of these amazing prophecies uh, that, that would only reassure these would-be apostles that the Bible is true, that God's word is true, that God's program as expressed in the Old Testament prophetic literature would be literally normally fulfilled in Jesus' second coming, just like it will be in just a few short days, Jesus' first coming. And we read it here. He would be turned over. He would be handed over to the Gentiles. This is a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 22, verse 16, the first part of that verse. This is written a thousand years before Jesus ever comes onto the scene. And there, the psalmist, in, in sort of a messianic... Uh, Um, analogy says the dogs have surrounded me a band of evildoers has encompassed me this this idea of dogs was a was a typical designation of of jews for their gentile counterparts they they had no love loss for them in the old mosaic covenant 
This is a reference to the fact that Jesus would be surrounded by Gentiles. That these evildoers would in fact be the hands and feet. These would be the people who would actually strike Jesus. These would be the people who would actually crucify Jesus and abuse Jesus. It was not just the Jews who were the Christ killers as Nazi Germany tried to pretend. No, it was the Gentiles who joyfully participated uh, and had no pangs of conscience in doing so. You know, this is the first reference to the Gentiles' role, at least specifically named as Gentiles in the physical suffering of Jesus as he atones for the sin of the world. We know here, we're told here that, that Jesus would be ridiculed. This is a fulfillment, again, of Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. Here I'm reading out of the NIV because it's a little more clear. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by everyone. This is the voice of the, the, the prophetic Messiah, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads, mockingly saying, he trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. The ridicule to the very words were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Our text tells us that Jesus would be abused. This is a, a fulfillment of Isaiah 52, verse 14. Just as many of you were astonished, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. The lashing, the crown of thorns, the beating, the plucking of the beard marred the visage of Christ to an unnatural, unidentifiable form. He was marred in a way that no other man had been. He was hardly, hardly recognizable as a human being. He was abused. Our text goes on to say to the detail that he would be spit upon. This is Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 at the, se the second part of this verse. And my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard, I did not cover my, my face from humiliation and spitting. A thousand years before, Messiah prophetically cries out that he would be spat upon. What amazing detail and the very precision where we're told by the gospel writers that Jesus of Nazareth, they spit in his face, the Gentile soldiers, as they beat him. Our text tells us that Jesus would be flogged. Uh, this is, again, a reference to Isaiah chapter 50 at the first, verse 6, the first part. There, the Messiah prophetically utters, I gave my back to those who strike me. The cat of nine tails, the beating with the, uh, the scepter as they mocked Jesus, having given him the robe, uh, the purple robe. Our text goes on to say in Luke chapter 18 that they would kill him. This is a reference to Psalm 22 again. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Lord, folks, this is stunning. This is, this is, um, 
prophecy of, of a kind of death that didn't even exist in the lifetime of the psalmist, nor for hundreds of years later. The whole idea of dying by crucifixion uh, did not uh, come into uh, practice or even, you know, the, just the awfulness. Who had dreamed this up? Or you even dreamed up until the, the, the Persians did it much later. And they didn't even pierce the hands and feet. They crucified. But it was the Romans who much later add the idea of crucifixion by the piercing of hands and feet. And literally it was 800 years after this prophetic utterance was made. We have a better understanding of Psalm 22 than the original readers. The common way for capital punishment to be instituted in David's day when the psalm was written uh, was through stoning. To have hands and feet pierced, that was a difficult one for them to understand. But he would be killed. And then on the third day, he would rise again. This, of course, is a reference uh, really uh, to Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And then the prophet goes on to make an analogy. He exchanges the, the great fish's belly, and he, he creates an analogy now to Sheol. And I called out of my distress, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 2, to the Lord, and he answered me, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. This is, this is the Hebrew word for the grave. So the prophet uh, prophets, prophesies, and we know this to be the case because in Matthew chapter 20, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39, there uh, Matthew uh, reports, or really Jesus uh, he reports the words of Jesus. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Well, what is that sign? Well, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Even the number of days which Jesus would remain in the belly of the earth was predicted hundreds of years ago, and Jesus himself precisely fulfills it, precisely fulfills it. You know, the soon-to-be apostles needed their values shaped. They needed help developing an all-encompassing allegiance to the Word of God, the written Word of God. It is disciple-makers that see those heavy lifts coming in the life of their disciples. And they know that sometimes, and I, I don't know if you felt this as a disciple, but as you're trying to explain some things, it's just not hitting. But you know it's coming. So what do we do, disciple maker? Well, I hope you're encouraged this evening by what Jesus did. He tried to encourage these soon-to-be apostles to have an undying allegiance to the veracity and clarity of the Word of God. You know, if you've given your disciple exactly what Jesus gave the twelve, you may not have been able to answer all their questions or all their applications, and sometimes they're quite confusing, and you don't know how to swim through all the shark-infested waters of their life. But if you've given them an undying love and allegiance for the objective Word of God, 
my friends, you have done for them exactly what Jesus did for these 12. And you, like he, knows that life is going to be difficult. And what's going to be required is not so much you as a discipler's ability to figure it all out for your disciple. That's something that they're going to have to do, but, but you need to give them the bedrock, the anchor. And that's the sufficiency of the word of God. Jesus did not give contemporary clarity. That's clear from our text to these 12. But rather, he gave them confidence in the fidelity and the sufficiency and the precise nuance of the word of God. It, as Paul says, has the ability to go deep down inside and, and, and determine the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And Jesus supported that and really reiterated it. So Jesus took time. Jesus gave a timeless anchor. And finally tonight, Jesus lives with tension of a paradox for now. So what's the paradox here? Um, well, the paradox is the idea that they didn't really understand a word of what Jesus was saying in terms of bringing clarity in the moment. They certainly understood prophecy. They certainly understood uh, allegiance to the word of God. And they certainly observed Jesus being much more forthright about how critical those prophetic fulfillments would be as they saw them unfold in the next few days and that they in fact would need then that commitment to continuing to trust the prophetic scriptures that that kingdom would come eventually although there may be a brief pause in that kingdom program so Jesus lives with the tension. He doesn't try to explain anything further. It seems as though Jesus accomplished his purpose. It's almost as though his purpose was not to clarify, but it simply was to ground them deeper in their understanding of Daniel's prophecy, in their understanding of the prophecy of the Psalms, and, and to remember that, oh yes, it was there. And Isaiah's prophecy and a dependence on the word of God. It seems as though that was his interest and intent. And you know, can I say that? We've already alluded to this. This is the paradox that all generations feel when they're trying to transfer a warning to a younger generation, to a new generation. Sometimes the wall is so unimaginable to the contemporary young generation, or it is just too fantastic, uh, uh, the implications that maybe the older generation, the, the Titus II men and women are trying to explain. It's just too fantastic for them to even wrap their minds around. Just seems probably impossible. The Titus II generation, they're trying to explain, they're trying to, and they contend to get overwrought if they're not careful. Titus II generation people in our church know that Jesus did not get overwrought. Know that all Jesus did is he said, look, there's a time coming, and it's going to be hard. And I can tell you exactly what's going on here. Obviously, we don't have all the powers of Jesus, some of us have lived long enough where we can almost see it coming. But his confidence was not, again, in the idea that he would be with them. He had to give them 
something else. And what he gave them was an encouragement to grip and a hold the infallible, inerrant Word of God. So Titus 2, people, I hope we understand that this is the greatest thing we can give. Um, God is well preparing the next generation. Uh, this is just how the church works. Um, they're skilled in ways that Titus 2 generations have no skill and ability in. They're growing up in, in the middle of the mess, and they're learning how to cope as they're in schools or as they're listening to the news or they're walking in the way with their friends and they're at colleges, and, and they're seeing and feeling all of this. And I, and I think sometimes the worst thing that we can do as a Titus 2 generation is, is, to, is to sort of get caught up in the spirit of the age and, and the, 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 the sort of throwing up of our hands and wondering, if there's any hope for tomorrow. Folks, there's incredible hope for tomorrow. God's word is sufficient. May it be our task not to answer all of the, the applicational questions and problems, although that may be helpful, but may our task be, Titus 2 generation, to demonstrate in our own lives living out in obedience to the word of God and then inviting those around us to love God's word and to believe in its sufficiency and its capability to guide and direct, regardless of the mess that any generation may find themselves in. God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. You know, what were some of the things that perhaps contributed to these 12's inability to understand? And, and I think there are some parallels here. Maybe one of them was they failed to understand God's plan as announced in Scripture, right? We, we see that. They, they sort of missed this two aspects of the coming of Messiah. That his first coming would be spent in suffering in misery and dying on the cross for the sins and his, his victorious coming would not be until his second coming. They, they fail to understand uh, uh, the program. You know, sometimes we, uh, we fail to understand or we get caught up in the here and now. We, we fail to remember that the king is coming and he will make it all right. Or we forget, Titus 2, generation that Jesus said, I will build my church. We don't have to bear the weight. We don't have to bear the weight. You know, perhaps they were blinded by the idea that because Messiah would have to suffer, that they as his followers too would have to suffer. You know, sometimes we forget this, that, that, that there is purpose, that, that trials come to those who live consistently and faithfully in Christ Jesus. And this is a part of God's plan. Uh, it's not ours always to wish it away or to try to make it all better or all go away. No, the task in this era, this dispensation is to endure. You know, perhaps, too, they, 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 had, they were incapable of understanding that rank for the Messiah was determined by service, not status or privilege. Some of you still wrestle with this idea and, 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 and is probably incipiently present in all of us, this, this idea of rank, of, of wanting maybe perhaps influence and authority. And it's very counterintuitive to understand that in the church, 
rank and authority comes not by being distinguished, but by serving, but by serving. So in other words, the disciples' hermeneutic was caught up in the spirit of the age. And you know, folks, if we're not careful, our hermeneutic will be caught up in the spirit of this age. Um, the spirit of the age uh, on the right, on the left politically. You know, we've got to be careful that our hermeneutics are not controlled by those spirits. We've got to make sure that our hermeneutic is controlled by the plain reading of Scripture and a willingness to do whatever the Word of God requires of me to do. And fundamentally, dear church, that is to love. To love God, to love your neighbor, to set aside your own self-interests. And oh, we have lots of self-interests, particularly as we're bombarded by the spirit of the age and those self-interests are often uh, set aflame. We've got to back that down. We've got to live for the success of others. May God help us as we do that. Um, you know, these factors did not somehow frustrate or contradict God's purposes. Rather, they were incorporated in and advanced God's purpose. The text not only tells us they didn't get it, but the text also tells us that this statement was hidden from them. It was not yet time to understand. What it was time for was to rehearse allegiance to the inerrant and infallible scriptures and to be warned about allowing the hermeneutics of the spirit of the age to capture them. You know, rehearsing the amazing nature of the infallible and errant scriptures, even when there seems to be confusion we'll go, with our own lives or with the lives of our disciple, will go a long way when your disciple hits the trials that await in their life. So in conclusion, the spirit of an age can be a powerful force, can't it? The church must maintain a discerning eye. The depth of her discernment is directly proportional to her relationship and belief in the inerrant, infallible scriptures. The church must not be a playground for ideas about ultimate realities. It must be a place where the objective Bible is read, understood, and progressively obeyed in our thoughts, emotions, and will as it's plainly understood. All of this must be in a disciple-making culture as exemplified by our Lord. May God help Grace Church of Mentor to be an effective backstop in our community. May the backstop we offer not be due to our judgmental attitudes. But may it be due to our commitment to the objective word of God and the Jesus revealed there, the Son of Man, the one who will come in the future kingdom to rule and reign. May we become experts not in popular culture and the spirit of the age, but may we become experts in, the pro in progressive obedience to the commands of the word of God. Our confidence in spanning generations and having a generational influence in our community is in this fundamental commitment that even if we now do not understand exactly how the scriptures may apply and it is challenging in the here and now what we are sure of is that when we do know 
The scriptures will be our infallible, authoritative, and binding guide, and not the spirit of our age. May God bless us, and may we have extreme discernment, particularly as things begin to open up and we regather as a church family. May God give us grace to love in knowledge and discernment so that we can approve excellent things as defined clearly by the word of God. Lord bless you. Good night.